Well, good morning, church. Um, hope you guys had a great Thanksgiving. The, uh, we are going to jump right back into our series um, on the Sermon on the Mount. And if you have a Bible, you can open it to Matthew chapter 5. Last week, um, Michael talked with us about... Trying to get my slides to work here. Michael talked with us about anger, and um, and I think did a pretty good job of containing his rage that I, I mentioned last week. He really brings to that discussion, um, which I appreciate. Uh, that was a big concern I had, and uh, we talked about the idea of the heart behind something rather than just the physical action and the consequences we see as a result of that. This morning we're talking about. It says in your bulletin lust. Um, I would say that a more accurate title for this morning's message is purity. It goes beyond just dealing with lust itself. In fact, if you wanted to, I mean, if you could, if you wanted to, you could just cross out lust and you could write purity uh, because that's really what we're talking about this morning because it goes beyond just a discussion of, um, of, of avoiding adultery and things like that to something much deeper that we'll see that Jesus talks about. So we're going to read Matthew, the first four, or the, we're going to read four verses, um, 27 through 30. And um, good news is that's few enough verses that you can actually see them if you look up on the screen or you can follow along in your Bible. So this is Matthew 5, 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Well, all right. Let's dive right in here. So Jesus is continuing something that he started, like he said last week, where he began talking about this very clear big issue that was addressed in the Ten Commandments. And it also happened to be one that you usually walk in, sit down and go, I'm good this week, right? I'm good with this one. I don't need to worry about this because I haven't murdered anybody, at least not that I'm aware of and that I know of. And this week, many of you, hopefully as you sit down, you go, I've not committed adultery and so I'm in the clear. I'm okay. Um, but what Jesus is doing here is what he also did that we looked at last week, which is he's taking something and he's bringing out true righteousness from it. Now, in the words adultery, he's talking about sleeping with somebody outside of the covenant of marriage. Um, now, that could be somebody who is like you, you could not yet be married and you're sleeping with somebody. That's, that's the same thing that's being addressed here as being married and sleeping with somebody outside of that marriage, whether it's another person who's married with another person who's single, something like that, okay? This is the language that Jesus is using here when he talks about adultery. This is a commandment people are very familiar with. And people often get tripped up by something like this, actually, especially people who aren't Christians, because they would say, let me get this straight. You believe in a God, who is big enough that he has created everything. He has created the universe as we know it. He has created all reality as we know it. And he cares about what goes on in your bedroom. He cares about what goes on in your personal life to this degree. Really? You believe that? That he cares? How could he? How could that happen? How could that make any sense? 
right? Now, if you know anything about people, you know that issues like anger and the emotions that come behind that, issues like sex, issues like uh, money, because the Bible talks a lot about money, and that's another thing that people often say, does God really care? Do you really believe that this all-powerful God cares about how you spend your money, right? Like, does he need it? Is that how it works? These issues come up again and again and again in Scripture because they are at the core of how we operate as people, how you handle your resources, how do you handle your relationships, how do you handle your emotions. It's not just about the things that come as a result of that, the consequences. It's about what it does to our own very own hearts, right? Even people who don't believe at all in a supernatural uh, God who created us, who believe that it is nothing but a natural process, would still say that reproduction is the driving force behind that concept, right? That that is the single most powerful urge that every person has. And so when Jesus starts talking about adultery, when he starts talking about purity in this area, he's addressing something that is huge, something that affects all of us significantly. Your attitude towards this issue is going to impact a lot of how you live your life, how you approach relationships, and what you pursue. Now, uh, Jesus takes what we have heard, and he elaborates on it. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There's a couple of things that he's doing here. First of all, typically people who were accused of adultery were women. You'll notice that the woman brought before Jesus to be stoned, she was caught in adultery. How do you get caught in adultery alone, right? That's kind of hard. She was probably caught in adultery with a man. But who did they bring before Jesus and want to stone? Was the woman. Okay, so first he's talking to men, probably, and he's saying to them, you are guilty of adultery. If you desire, because this word for uh, looking at a woman with lustful intent, that lustfulness, that word lustful, you translate that, it means desire and longing. And the overwhelming majority of the times that it's used in the New Testament are good situations. Okay, how weird is this? How crazy is this? Paul says, I have longed to visit you. Same word, okay? Someone who says, I desire that you would be a holy people. Same word, right? So he's actually talking about a kind of desire that usually we associate with good, like be, almost like the beginnings of a relationship, right? Like, hey, I like that person. I want to be with that person. I desire them. I desire to have them. I desire for them to be a part of my life. He's saying, if you're married, and you want someone else, then you've committed adultery with your heart. Oh man, that's pretty brutal. So here we're getting an example from Jesus. We're getting an example of a married person who's let their eyes wander. Not for a moment, not for a second, but this person has really entertained the thought, they've really thought about it, they've really fed into that fantasy. Okay, that's what he's talking about here. This could be physical, this could be emotional, or this could be pure fantasy. But what Jesus is saying is that it is sin, just as much as the act of adultery is. Now, um, Think about it this way for, for, for a second. Imagine um, a person who comes home from work, they're sitting down having dinner with their spouse. And they say, well, I was at work today. And uh, that person kept walking by my desk, 
You know, the one who's always walking by and it feels like they're trying to get my attention, trying to get me to look at them, trying to get me to think about them or whatever. And uh, man, they were really like just constantly, you know, today, right? And then that's it, okay? That's, that's one conversation, okay? Now let's say the person went, you know, took a drink of water or whatever, and then was like, yeah, so I just, it was crazy. I found myself sitting there at my desk thinking, what would it be like to be married to them? You know, that'd be pretty nice. They, they, they seem to kind of be interested in me and, you know, I mean, I, you know, you and I can both agree you're probably not that interested in me anymore. And, um, you know, they seem to, uh, they seem to really, uh, they're, they're, you know, they're better looking they're, or they're in better shape, you know, than you are. Um, and so I was thinking that and I was thinking about how nice it might be to be maybe with that person and, you know, you know, instead of you. And, um, I don't know, I just, kind of, I just keep finding myself thinking about that, thinking about being married to other people and how nice that would be sometimes. Sometimes it's fleeting, but other times I think about it for a long time. Would you ever say that to someone that you're married to? No, don't say it, okay? <laughs> Why? Because it would destroy them. I was, I was talking to someone after the first service whose spouse said this to them once. And they said it to me in the context of it destroyed our relationship when they said this to me. So think about this for a second. If you said that to someone you're married to, it would probably begin to undermine the very foundation of your relationship and the trust that goes with it. Even having those things voiced. And yet, how many have thought that? How many have asked those questions? How many have felt those things? It's almost as though Jesus knows how destructive it is. And he says, you think the act is the sin? Or is it all of this other stuff that we often entertain and think about when we're honest with ourselves that lead up to it? If you have in your heart a desire or a longing for another person, he says, you have sinned. Not just a passing thought, but a real desire and longing. Now, this is a great quote from Martin Luther that people often point to when they talk about this passage. You cannot keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from nesting in your hair. You can't control all the things that are going on by you and around you constantly. But are there things that you can do to make sure that those things don't grow and fester and nest and roost and sit, right? Yeah, there are things that you can do. Now, we um, are, most of us are not actually that turned off by sin. We're turned off by the consequences of sin, which is why what Jesus is teaching here and what we talked about last week is so revolutionary. Because anyone would agree that if you murder someone, that's bad and there's consequences. And it's the consequences of murder and the scale of that that keep us from doing it. And if you were to ask somebody, why'd you split up with your spouse? And they go, they cheated on me. You go, well, all right, there you go. No more discussion. Uh, Totally qualified. You're allowed to leave your spouse. Why? Because there's consequences when someone actually has a physical affair with a person And that's not just within the church, right? Outside of the church. Everybody accepts that would understand that. Oh, okay. Well, then that makes sense, at least in most cases. You see, in situations where there are clear, like, consequences that ruin our lives, that we regret later on the consequences, we then don't like the sin, and we say, yeah, that's a big deal. We should not do it. We should avoid doing it. But we have a much harder time with sin that doesn't show those very consequences to that degree, at least not yet that people wouldn't be able to universally see all the destruction and damage that it's caused. And so we say, what's the consequence of something? 
What's the harm or desire of longing for another person? Isn't that something everyone does? Isn't, aren't these things that everybody feels in the way that everybody lives? Right now, um, like every day, you, you know, check the news online or something, there's like a couple famous people whose, you know, names have come out as they've, you know, sexually assaulted or harassed somebody or something along those lines. And as a result, they're, you, you know, their career's totally over now, probably. Um, I mean, really, like I, I have a friend who, who, I don't know why he does this, but he texts me the name of the person whenever he hears it. And I, and I pull my phone out and I read it and I go, oh, this person. Okay, well, that's it. Their, their career's over. Okay, and then I put my phone back in my pocket because that's what's happening right now, like two or three people a day. People, people are celebrities, people in the entertainment industry, because there's now this big windfall of things starting to come out as people are feeling more comfortable reporting that people have done inappropriate things around them and for them. And apparently there's been this culture of this for so many years now, right? And so as a result, each person, or oftentimes the people who are accused, come out with, a, with an apology. They come out with a, uh, you know, a statement something to explain, usually how sorry they are and how much damage they've caused and how they regret it and how they're gonna go about changing and how they're gonna seek treatment or something like that, right? And, uh, and the one thing that you have yet to see and that we will never see is someone coming out saying, uh, I, I just need to make an apology and I need to confess something that I've done. A person who's famous, somebody in the same group of people who says, no one's accused me, no one's come forward about it, but I know what I did, and they know what I did, and they don't deserve that, and I want them to know that they have more dignity than the way I treated them, and so I need to apologize because that's the right thing to do. Okay, that's what it looks like to apologize because it's the right thing to do. Literally everything else is apologizing because of the consequences, right? Is coming forward and saying, I regret it, I'm sorry, this is bad, I have a lot to learn. Uh, the head of... The head of Pixar this last week just took a six-month leave of absence from his job. And in the statement, he said, I have become aware that I have made certain missteps in my life. And I apologize to those that I've hurt. Missteps, okay? A misstep is a misstep. It's trying to step somewhere and accidentally stepping somewhere else. There were people that worked with him who had a name. His name, the Lassiter, was like a move to protect yourself from him because he was always wanting to hug people of the opposite sex. That's not a misstep, okay? That's like a long-time problem that he's now sorry for and seeking some kind of help for and reconciliation for because accusers began to come forward. Because the consequences of sin are the thing that we're really afraid of. And it's the things that really brings out all, this, all, the, all, the, all, the, all the wreckage and everything. I have a good friend who says it this way, and I think this makes a lot of sense. He says, sin is understandable, but it's not acceptable. As a Christian, you, you should say, I understand why sin happens. I understand why it happens in my life. I understand why I see it in other people. But is it acceptable? No. It's not. It's never okay. It's not acceptable. It's not something that we should get used to and that we should just find a way to live with. Not in our own lives. We must say, I know it will be there because that's the reality of living in the flesh, but it's not okay. Not just because of the consequences, 
but because of the sin itself. And so Jesus goes on and he says this to his disciples after a pretty big statement to them about what really constitutes adultery. He goes further and he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Well, this is pretty extreme. And uh, what he's doing is he's probably anticipating the, the natural response that you would get from this, which is this. Jesus has just given this challenge to his disciples. Any reasonable person who actually has the courage to speak up to Jesus would say, but Jesus, come on. It's everywhere. I mean, there's, there's temptation everywhere. It's all around me. I mean, if you're going to, it's one thing to say, don't physically do that act. But it's another thing to say you're, you're hard and what you want and what you long for and where all that's at. I mean, that's, how could I possibly? I mean, come on, right? None of us could do that. Who could really ultimately keep from longing and desiring after some other person at some point while you're married? How in the world can we actually stop sinning in this way? And what Jesus is saying to them is this. He's saying, okay, anything no matter how important that thing is, like eye or hand important. If you're left-handed, sorry. This definitely is like a right-handed thing, okay? Right eye or right-handed important. Anything, no matter how important it is to you, must be let go of if it's causing you to sin, if it's leading you to sin. His response to Jesus, look at all the temptation out there, is, yeah, you're right. So, if you see something leading you to sin, then take drastic action. Because that's the only way that you'll be able to really combat it and fight with it. Even if you're dependent on these things, you must be willing to let them go. Is that me? I have no idea what that sound is. Okay. Even if you are constantly dependent on these things... Even if you're comfortable with these things, even if you need these things to make life happen, it feels like, let them go. The word that Jesus uses here, if it causes you to sin, is directly translated stumble. Okay, if it causes you to stumble, and that stumbling isn't actually just a misstep, okay? It's actually like stumbling so bad that you fall over, that you fall down, okay? So he's saying, if it causes you to be taken out, if it takes you out, then remove the thing that leads to it, the temptation that leads to it. Here's your right hand, your right eye causing you to sin, and take those things out. Do you have money? Does that money cause you to sin? If so, get rid of it. That's it. Jesus says that to somebody. He meets a rich guy on the road, and the guy says, how do I live a holy life? And Jesus says, okay, get rid of your money. Why does he tell him that? Not because he wants everyone to get rid of their money, but because for that person, that money has become something in which there is no way that he can be truly free to follow Jesus without getting rid of that thing, without cutting off that probably very useful and valuable resource that he has. Jesus says, if it's causing you to sin, then get rid of it. Do you have things that you like to do, but they consume you. 
Do you have hobbies and pastimes and these things have consumed you to such a degree that they have become idols? That there's no way that God could, could like, they're just crowding everything else out in life. If so, get rid of this good thing. If it leads to something that is bad. Do you drink? Not water. Do you drink? Okay, do you need to drink? Do you have to drink? Can you cope without drinking? Can you go a day without drinking? If not, then don't drink. Then get rid of this thing if it leads you down that road. Are you bitter? Are you envious? Are you jealous? Do you feel hatred and anger for people? Trace those things to what leads you down that road and ask yourself, how do I get rid of this temptation that keeps leading me here again and again and again? The internet. I mean, there's pornography on the internet and there's also way too many people on the internet overall. And so even the very thing like social media can for many of us fill up our lives with so many voices, even if they're Christians, and so many things that people care about and think about that we have to care about, that we have to think about. And now, we're, now we feel inadequate and now we feel like, like, like we're like insecure or all these different things. And how could God's voice possibly get in when we give him like a few minutes a day and then we just spend the rest of our day surrounded by all of this other stuff? Or maybe for many, we only give him a, a cup, like an hour a week and then we're surrounded by all these voices. And so for many of us, it's like, I just, I, you need to maybe cut it out and get rid of it because of what it leads to. Even passion and the things that we want to do, okay, how crazy is this? In the New Testament, the word passion is usually used to describe suffering, like the passion of Christ. And oftentimes, the times when we would use the word passion, you could actually use the word lust. Oh, I've got such a lust for this thing. I'm, I'm, I'm just lustfully pursuing this thing that I want to see happen in my life. I'm committed to seeing this thing, to accomplishing this thing, to, to having more of this thing in my life because I'm passionate about it, because I lust for this thing. And for some, that's the case. And that very passion might actually continue to lead you into a place of sin. And so you cut it out. I mean, wow, I'm still getting used to this in Oregon. <laughs> I didn't have this where I was from. You see this even in the, in the book of Acts, right, with Peter, where Peter is, uh, uh, he's a missionary, basically, he's an apostle, he's going out and he's preaching to a lot of Jewish people, and he kind of likes Jewish people because he knows Jewish people and he's comfortable with Jewish people, and then God's like, okay, I want you to go start preaching to some other people. So he comes to him in a vision, in a vision where he shows him food and basically says, hey, guess what, it's okay, it can all be eaten. Here's like a sheet with some food on it, and that means that people can eat the food. And so you can go to Gentiles and Jews and know that it's the gospel's for all of them. That even if they're not eating what you would eat, that that doesn't mean that they can't have the gospel and that they can't live Christian lives. And then Paul comes and sees Peter in ministry, and he pulls them aside and he goes, Peter, you're only sitting with Jewish people. You're leaving all the Gentiles over there. And he's like, oh yeah, but it's okay. You know, I just, I like these guys. And he's like, no, like if you really want to have a heart for them, if you really want to reach them with a burden for the gospel, then stop sitting at the cool kids table all the time and sit at the other kids table. And as specific as that might be for Peter sitting at a table, like led him to something that was regrettable and that was ultimately wrong. And so his friend comes and says to him, 
who knows them well and knows the mission that they're on, says like, hey man, you got to cut this out. Otherwise, like, it's not going to work. Sin is more powerful than we give it credit for. It is a living, sometimes growing thing, and so it must be killed, not just avoided. We don't just avoid sin. It gets killed. The language in the Bible towards sin and toward the enemy say things like, it takes root, it gets a foothold, it grows, it devours, it stalks us like a lion, ready to consume us. That is what scripture says about sin. And so the Christian, the follower of Jesus, must believe that there is an enemy who wants nothing short than to totally destroy them. And knowing that, they must take that enemy and that temptation, that sin, very seriously. One pastor says this. He says, when a person's behavior contradicts their theology, either their behavior must change or their beliefs must change. And so you find yourself in a place maybe where you go, well... Maybe the Bible says this, but I do this. Jesus says this incredible thing in the Sermon on the Mount, but I can't do it, I do this. Well, then you will ultimately choose one of two things. You'll, you'll change what you believe. You'll say, oh, I didn't really fully understand it before, and now I do. Or Now that it's become more of a struggle for me, I realize I was an immature way of looking at the Bible or the world or God or something like that. It's a narrow-minded way or something like that, and so it's not how I look at it anymore. Or you go, okay, well, I got to reconcile my way of living with what I'm seeing in Scripture. And that's probably not entirely going to be an easy process. This is leading us to a concept that is very essential to living as a Christian. It's a concept that Jesus is introducing here. And it is something that, some, that, that one pastor named uh, John Owen calls the mortification of sin, which means the killing of sin. The mortification of sin. Sin is something that has to be killed, so how do we kill it? We remove things that are in themselves not sin because of their propensity to lead us to sin. That's how Jesus says that we do it. He says that you will be in situations where you'll see something that maybe leads you to sin. And you have to cut that thing out even though that thing is in and of itself not bad. Are eyes bad? No. Are hands bad? No. But if they lead you to sin, they've become corrupted. And so you cut it out because it's better for that to happen than for your whole body to go into hell or to Gehenna, which is like this big burning garbage heap where something is thrown away and completely useless. This is like the scene. This is like the scene at the end of a Schwarzenegger film where he puts the face paint on and he gets like a Gatling gun that no one else could even hold but him. And he like puts a knife in his boot and he goes to kill the bad guy, basically. He's like, all right, I'm not, I'm not going to stop until they're gone. Okay, I'll get even more specific because for some reason I like thinking about this. This is like the scene where Arnold Schwarzenegger does all that and then he gets a VHS tape and he puts it in an envelope and he, and he sends it to a news station and says, here's the evidence. I'm going to go get him if I don't make it you know, publish it, right? Make sure, because I'm going to get these guys and I'm going to make sure that this whole thing ends here, right? Ends now. That is the mortification of sin that theologians talk about with so much seriousness. If you had a lion trying to kill you, what would you do? Hopefully, you would have a plan. I mean, I hope that you would, I told this to the first service, if you get nothing else out of the sermon, please get this. If a lion's trying to kill you, develop some kind of a plan. 
Don't just hope that it will get distracted and go try to kill someone else. We remove things that are in themselves not sin because of their propensity to lead us to sin. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, yes, the temptation's out there. So cut it off. That's how you're going to deal with it. And there's a couple of different things that I think specifically show us what this process looks like or that we have to keep in mind for what this process looks like. The first one is this. When we do this, it's a personal thing. And so you do it yourself. You do it for yourself. You do it to yourself. Your own conscience drives it. Only you and those absolutely closest to you probably see the things that really lead to your stumbling. What leads you to struggle is many times different than what causes other people to struggle. Temptation is not the same even as sin itself. So where does temptation come from for me? For me, personally? What leads to that thing? What opens the door for that thing? And how do I deal with it? Now, Scripture often uses phrases about conscience. We read by the authors of the New Testament especially, encouragements to appeal to our conscience, to, to in full good conscience do things. Because the belief is that when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us, then not only does he give us a new heart, but he also gives us a conscience, a sense of right and wrong that, that we should listen to. And your conscience will tell you. You will know if you do what Scripture tells us to do, which is to search your heart. If you say, okay, what's going on in here? What's leading to it? No one else can really do that for you. And you certainly don't get to do it for somebody else, unfortunately. So this is a personal thing that each one of us has to do for ourselves. This is probably the most obvious one. It will hurt. When we remove temptation from our life, it will hurt. Uh, you may not be the kind of person who reads super deep into things, so I'll pull this one out for you. Um, he's talking about scooping out your eye and cutting off your hand. And from, you know, where I'm from, that hurts. He's describing a process that's a painful one and that's a messy one often. Are you taking precautionary steps in your life to avoid sin and do those steps sometimes hurt? Part of what hurts is simply getting rid of the thing itself because it won't happen naturally. I think many of us would like to think that this passage says, uh, if your right hand causes you to sin, don't worry, it'll rot and fall off. If your right eye causes you to sin, don't worry, it's just going to rot and fall off. Because what he's talking about is much more proactive than that. He's talking about what we talk about when we talk about things like cancer and sickness. We talk about cutting things out before they have the ability to kill us entirely. He's saying when you identify that something is corrupted, then get rid of it before it spreads. That process of getting rid of it will hurt and it will be messy. But it must be decisive. When you think about the study of medicine and how much over the course of time the study of medicine has been us figuring out what things to cut off and what things not to, right? What things to do and what things not to do. And there were times when people did that. They would like cut things off and then come to realize a few years later, oh, we actually didn't need to do that. There was another way. There were years where we were bleeding diseases out of people 
Turned out that didn't work so well, right? And so Jesus is essentially giving us like this medical textbook for how to deal with sin. And he's saying, here's how you actually deal with it. But know this, it's not just going to take care of itself. We cannot wait until sin so pollutes something that it's merely a relief to unload it. And I think that's how many of us often probably hope it would work. That it just gets so bad that it's like, well, of course I have to let it go now or get rid of it. Now, this is especially hard for adults because adults are used to being able to do whatever we want. Really, right? I mean, honestly, like as a pastor... I've seen this be probably the biggest hurdle to most people dealing with sin in their lives. Is going, I should be able to handle everything and do everything that I want. I'm a grown person. I should be able to do that. And so my encouragement, you know, grown-up people, is be teachable and know that that's not a maturity thing. Where you just get to a point where you now get to do all the things you want. You know, because doesn't Jesus want people who are strong enough to deal with every temptation? so that they don't have to cut anything out of their life? Won't that look bad to non-Christians, maybe? And to young people, I say, keep doing it. Don't go through that season that most adults go through where they say, okay, I did that. Everybody was always telling me to like monitor how I live and the things that I do and make wise decisions so that in the end I can live better or something like that. No, keep thinking that way. The way of painful sacrifice is often needed in order to do the right thing. And that I have to be the one to often see that thing and call it out. The other thing is this. It often will seem unnecessary to other people. Sometimes other Christians. Almost all the time, people who do not follow Jesus. Because they'll look at you and they'll look at the things that you might do, that you might feel like, I need to get rid of this thing. I need to care, be much more careful about this thing. And they will be like, what? That's unnecessary. That's totally unnecessary that you would have to do that. Because they will see you cutting off the thing and they will not see the sin itself. They won't. Most people who are diagnosed with cancer, who have to undergo some kind of surgery that cuts it out, we don't actually see the cancer on them most of the time. I mean, we trust them when they say that's what happened. Why else would you do that, undergo the knife like that? But for many, they don't see the sin. They just see that you're choosing to do something that seems often unnecessary. Others may look at this thing and they say it's perfectly fine. And it's also true that your removal of something can often make other people feel defensive. It makes other people feel like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So wait, so now, oh, I get it. So now, now I have to, and now we all have to because you're doing it, right? And this is why, again, it's a personal thing. It's not something we go around just imposing on everybody else. Followers of Jesus will see the danger in things that other people probably won't see oftentimes. Salt and light, we talked about that a few weeks ago. Light gives you the ability to see things, to see clearly. And oftentimes that means to see the, how corrupted things are and to see the sin in things. I won't elaborate on this too much, but I'll just say this. My brother works in forensics for a police department and he has one of those lights. And so on more than one occasion, my brother has slept on a hotel couch and not on a hotel bed because he has one of those lights. 
Because there's something about being able to see that makes you go, yeah, no, I'm good. I know, right? No, it's totally fine. No, no, okay, fine. Yeah, I'm good on the couch, right? And that's what the light does. It does. It illuminates things in our lives that cause us to go, oh, you know what? It isn't totally fine. It isn't totally normal. Why do people play with fire? Because usually they don't think that it will burn them. They're not afraid of the consequences of it. I have this friend named Nate who, when he was in high school, for a year or so, his parents let him, they just let him, uh, live in an RV in their driveway. These are the kinds of things that you want to do when you're in high school. You can't ask too many questions. It's just, yeah, I think I would feel a little bit more independent if I could just live in an RV in the driveway. Okay, you have a room, but that's fine. So he lived in an RV in the driveway. It was really cold in the winters. And so, you know, he slept with a space heater on his feet, on the blankets, on his bed. Um, and he woke up one night. You're never going to guess where this story's going. He woke up one night... And there was, his feet were on fire, his blanket, right, at his feet was on fire. It wasn't a big fire, but it was on fire. Uh, and what he, now what he didn't do was go, oh, it's just my feet, and go back to bed. That would be foolish, right? But this is essentially what we often do. And what Jesus is saying, hey, keep in mind that if your feet are on fire, it's going to spread. That if you're sitting on a sofa and the other arm of the sofa is on fire, it's, you don't really just go, oh, that's fine, it's over there, right? I mean, it's down there, I'm sure it'll be fine. Maybe take a little bit more precaution than that. Because fire spreads, and fire is dangerous, and fire hurts. So what often might seem unnecessary to others is not unnecessary. And we believe that God is good, qualitatively good for us, and enjoyable by us, and so as a result of that, we can let go of things and know that we will still be able to experience joy and this fullness of life that he promises us. And a little side bonus, I'm pretty sure that in heaven you won't have one hand. And I'll be honest, I don't know enough of the details to say if you'll have, if we just all won't have to worry about hands or if you'll definitely, there, you know, you'll definitely have both hands. But what I will tell you is that in heaven there will not be people with one hand. So you don't have to worry about that. But God promises us. He's like, there's more joy found in me than any of the things that you would ever have to get rid of, that you would ever have to cut out of your life. And so you do it joyfully knowing that. The why others might look at you and go, your life is now less complete than mine. Your life now has less than mine. You go, yeah, but not really. Because sin gets in the way of things with me and God. This is what uh, John Owen says about this. He says, every unmortified sin will certainly do two things. It will weaken the soul and deprive it of its vigor. It will darken the soul and deprive it of its comfort and peace. He's saying every sin that goes unattended, will, you will pay for that in the end. It will kill your spirit slowly, and it will hurt your life physically. That that will happen. So yes, it might seem unnecessary to people, but it's worth it. From the joy that comes from it, and it's worth it because we know of the danger of sin and its ability to, to spread and corrupt things. And I have found as a Christian that there is often this dichotomy that I do live with, which is one, I have people admire me for my conscience and the purity that is exhibited in my life and then resent me for saying or showing what it did to have that purity. 
will admire what they see, but then if you get into the details of what that kind of, what led to that, it will be like, you know, oh, come on, I don't need to hear about that stuff. Here we go. I knew it. You're a pastor. Now you're going to tell me I need to live my life, right? Now you're going to judge me. You're going to be all judgy, right? But this is often a double standard that Christians deal with. And this is partly why, yes, there are times when people will look at us and say they live differently, and that's a testament to their faith. But there are other times that they might look at you and they might say, you don't make any sense to me. Because you have these things that you don't seem to think that you can even handle. And honestly, what grown adult can't handle them? But this is the other thing, and this is really important. You can go too far. So we have to ask this about every single thing that we look at in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's this. How would the Pharisees have ruined it? Because the Pharisees are really good at ruining almost everything Jesus teaches, it seems. Okay? So how would the Pharisees ruin it? Why do we have to ask that question? Because we're people sitting in church right now, okay? Now, I'm not saying we're Pharisees, but I'm saying, yes, we will have the tendency to want to take this and just make it a little bit more comprehensive, just for the sake of, you know, helping everybody else. Maybe they don't all get it on the way that I get it. Here's what they would have done. They would have developed a list of possible temptations, and then they would have forbade people from doing all those things. That's what they would have done. They would have placed the temptation, the hand, the eye, on the same level as the sin itself. And they would have said, no one gets hands. No one gets eyes. Because we all know they lead to sin. Because they did for him. I didn't mean to point at you, Chris, sorry. <laughs> Make some lawyer joke there, but... They say, no bikinis, no PG-13 movies, no men get to be around women at all, no dancing, no hugging, no talking on the phone, no parties. They just get even crazier. You know what? Never mind. No TV, no movies, none, no video games, no music, no art, no, 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 no. If it leads to sin for anyone, that it's sin for everybody and we can't do it. That's how we live as Christians. I'm sure that's what Jesus meant. He just didn't have time to tell us. That's what the Pharisees would do. You can go too far with this. This is in part why I say it's personal. We don't get to just tell everybody else. And so for, if, if you're sitting here and you're like, man, I've been loving this sermon. Man, I've been loving this passage. People need to hear this. Then this point's probably your point, okay? <laughs> really. Because you're probably like, oh man, I got some ideas now and maybe we can do this and I'm gonna send out an email and I'm gonna be so excited and now our church is gonna start doing this. Nope, not necessarily. I don't want to have like a no hand, no eye church. <laughs> to say that to do something is a sin because it leads to sin is to take this too far, and that's simply not true. And the fact is, for some people, the eye causes them to stumble. For other people, the hand causes them to stumble. For other people, the foot causes them to stumble. And any theologian who talks about this, any, has a quote like this in their writings. Mortification from self-strength carried on by ways of self-invention unto the end of a self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. What Jesus is talking about is a kind of proactiveness that is very revolutionary and frankly, you don't see very often. And it's this. It is not the proactiveness of saying, okay, let's just make a list. Let's make a really long list. 
because that's what he was talking about. That's not the kind of proactive he's saying, because do you know what that doesn't do is it doesn't address the things that really probably cause you to stumble. If you've been doing nothing but following rules your entire life, then those rules are probably not about the things that cause you to stumble. They've just become the way that you're used to living. The proactiveness that Jesus is talking about is being able to actually stop and say, God, search my heart. What of what I'm doing now, in my life now, that I'm comfortable with and attached to and used to now, is leading me into temptation and causing me to sin? What for me is leading me down that road? I can tell you that is a question people rarely ask. We rarely ask. We go, I'm fine. It's good. And then that's it. And we do this because it's not just about cutting things out. It's not just about getting rid of things in our life. There is a positive side as well. It's in this passage. It's so familiar to many of us in Philippians 4. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's pure, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Say, we focus on these good things. Our desire is that our minds and our hearts would be aimed at and focused on and, and, and filled with these things and these thoughts. So what is the stuff that keeps leading me down the other roads? What is the stuff that keeps getting me away from these things? I have talked to husbands who have struggled with pornography and who have kept it secret for years because coming clean would cost them the thing that they value most, their image, their self-respect, and their dignity. I've known men and women, both, who have had multiple affairs, in part because of how completely natural they think it is to desire other people, and also in part because they long ago decided that their spouse was not making them happy. And so they just live their life in this fantasy world of thinking about other people and wanting other people and thinking, well, I guess if I don't get divorced, then I'm okay. When you call it natural, there's no alarm going off anymore. When you say that's normal, that's what everyone does, there's no alarm going off anymore. I've seen men and women escape into completely consuming worlds of obsessions and hobbies and interest groups that make, it possible for, that make it impossible for them to even really see God's perspective on their life and forces them to speak empty religious words while living totally different lives. People who say, I'm going to be who I am in light of this community, this thing, this obsession, this world that I'm a part of, and then I'll ask God to help me have some good ways of living. I'm going to let who I am be defined by it. And God's voice can't get through that. A disciple of Jesus doesn't look at the world around them and say, oh, well, temptation's everywhere. It's all around. This is what it means to be human, so we just have to deal with it. There's a um, very well-known story about a man who's walking at night, and he goes down this alley for a shortcut, and there's a hole, and he falls in the hole. He gets out of the hole, and the next night he goes, I'm not going to fall in that hole again, so he takes a light with him, and I don't even know the story. All I know is he goes down the alley way too many times, and he keeps falling in the hole. And then one day, it occurs to him that he doesn't have to walk down that alley anymore. And even though it's a shortcut, it means he keeps falling in a hole. This is what Jesus is talking about, is he is saying, stop walking down the alley. 
Yeah, you're limited. Your mobility is limited. But it's better than falling in a hole and being stuck in a hole all the time. And that is what sin ultimately leads to. And what we need is we need the courage to do this, to begin this process of saying, God, would you search my heart? And then we need the hope of knowing as this is what repentance needs. Repentance cannot happen without hope that it's better on the other side. Without hope that when we let go of the thing, that even though it seems like that's the thing that makes me happy or that's the thing that I can't imagine letting go of, that there is life on the other side of it and that it is better, even if it's a little bit more restricted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that above all else, we don't have to do this on our own power. And we thank you for your son, Jesus. God, um, we do pray for your Holy Spirit. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that you've given us, that has changed our heart. And he has given us a, 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 a conscience. And not only that, but a supernatural power to change us, Lord. This isn't just about our effort because your Holy Spirit does transform lives and hearts. Our prayer is that we would seek you out, that we would allow ourselves to be vulnerable to you and that we, rather than focusing on what other people need and what they need to stop doing and what they need to limit in their lives, that we would focus on our own Lords. Not, not in some self-obsessed way of trying to become the best person we possibly can, but simply because we don't want sin to separate us from you. We want the joy that comes in you, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Um, two things, two other things that I want to I say as we go this morning. One, um, without Jesus, this is just attempts at legalism. The thing that motivated the Pharisees the most was fear. It was fear of actually not being righteous and doing the wrong thing. And that fear caused them to overcompensate by trying to make all kinds of extreme lists and rules and things like that. And so we have to know that fear is not what drives this because we know if we're a follower of Jesus that our Father loves us and that it is his grace and our gratitude for him that drives us to simply want to live in a way that there isn't separation between us and him and that's what sin causes. So for many of us, we need to hear that. Now that being said, if you are a person who cannot remember the last time you felt a sense of guilt, like biblical guilt, over either the way that you've lived or some choices you've made or the way that you've treated someone or something that you've done, chances are you probably need to spend a little bit of time praying and saying, God, search my heart. What's going on? Because I can tell you that we are all sinful, and it's a matter of being honest in that process with him. So, for, so um, Amen? Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Have a great week.